0: Welcome to Health Fail, where we explore failure in healthcare from the highly publicized to the never-before-told stories of failures that have birthed healthcare transformation and innovation. I'm your host, Zach Jiwa. And I'm co-host,
1: Stephen Cutbirth. And for this episode, we talked about the many interpretations of patient advocacy with Felicia Bettenker-Jobert of The CARES Group.
0: We hope you enjoy this episode of Health Fail. We would love your feedback. Feel free to go to healthfail.com, click on this episode, and tell us what you think. Also, we would love for you to share the Health Fail podcast with your friends on Twitter, Facebook, or LinkedIn. Hey guys, welcome to another edition of the Health Fail Podcast. We're uh, broadcasting live here from the worldwide headquarters of the Karis Group here in Austin, Texas. We have our Topo Chico's in hand and our hipster beards. Skinny jeans? No?
1: Your beard's a little short.
0: Oh, well. Mine's a little patchy. hipster. I want to be a hipster. <laughs> I don't have enough hair to be a hipster. We you still are. Mm-hmm. We are joined today by our friend and our colleague... Felicia Betancourt Joubert. Um, welcome to the show, Felicia. Thanks for joining us today.
2: Yes, thanks for having me on the show. I'm thrilled about our topic, patient advocacy. Awesome.
0: Patient advocacy. Mm-hmm. Stephen, why are we talking about patient advocacy today? Is this a big promo for the Caris Group? That's a great question. <laughs> so, disclaimer,
1: that, that is a large part of what we do here, uh, but that's not the only reason we're talking about it. Um, a few weeks back, there was a Twitter chat with healthcare leader, hashtag HCLDR, which is a weekly chat that that happens online around healthcare folks um, and is often very valuable. In the conversation, there was a, a post that came up from a, a friend of ours, Nick Adkins of the Pink Sox fame. That's at
0: Nick is in
1: Shout out to you, Nick, brother. Love you. Can't miss him. Always got a kilt on. Good guy. I call it a skirt. So <laughs> I call it a kilt. in Austin, we call it a kilt. Uh, so it, I, I'll just read the tweet. And then there was kind of this whole conversation behind it that really led to me saying, man, I think there may be some miscommunication around what patient patient advocacy is. So he said, patient advocacy as a business. I'm having a difficult time getting my head around that. It seems like that would be something included by the health system and or payer or volunteered by patient community.
0: And that Hashtag led. HCLDR, hashtag pink socks. You got to have pink socks. We just got to and do. his
1: font link is pink as well.
0: You're not wrong, Nick. You're not wrong. But I think we uh, should spend some more time on what it is all about for sure.
1: So it, it led to a robust conversation. We'll link to the entire conversation in the show notes. Uh, but we wanted to have this conversation. And that's, I think, why we brought in Felicia. So maybe this would be a good time, Felicia, for you to tell us a little bit about yourself and why you're a good person to talk about patient advocacy.
2: Sure, I joined the CARES group five years ago, a little bit over five years now, and I started as a patient advocate And then when they brought me into this role and I started working here, I was mainly negotiating medical bills for individuals that were either uninsured or underinsured. And that was the the actual role on paper of being a patient advocate. But as I got into the role, I realized that it was more about advocating for the individual, for their family, um, their livelihood, and a lot of times explaining to the provider or the hospital uh, their unique situation and being that advocate and that voice that the member doesn't actually know how to maybe talk to the hospital system or who to ask for so to me that was a, a large part rather than just negotiating the bills but making this individual an ind- a person and sharing their story with the provider and advocating for them rather than just being an account number
0: yeah so thank you Felicia that's that's really good I, I just you know it's it was hard for me whenever I joined uh, the company as CEO and and you know six or seven months ago and so I just want to read I think it's worthwhile reading what you know the World Wide Web says patient advocacy is mm-hmm. um, I found a link to um, to the definition from uh, Wikipedia that says, actually there's two, right? There's one from NCI and one from Wikipedia. Mm-hmm. So Wikipedia says that patient adv- advocacy is an area of specialization in healthcare concerned with advocacy for patients, survivors, and caregivers. The patient advocate may be an individual or an organization often through, often, not all, all though not always, concerned with one specific group of disorders. The terms patient advocate and patient advocacy can refer to both to individual advocates providing services that organizations also provide and to organizations whose functions extend to individual patients. Some patient advocates work for the institutions that are directly responsible for the patient's care. Which is interesting. Uh, Yeah, NCI says a person who helps guide a patient through the healthcare system. This includes help going through the screening, diagnosis, treatment, and follow-up of a medical condition such as cancer. A patient advocate helps patients communicate with their healthcare providers so they get the information they need to make decisions about their healthcare. Patient advocates may also help patients set up appointments for doctor visits and medical tests and get financial, legal, and social support. They may also work with insurance companies, employers, case managers, lawyers, and others who may have an effect on a patient's healthcare needs, also called a patient navigator. So I mean that's uh, loquacious, that's uh, long-winded, um, but I, w- I just go back to Nick's statement: um, patient advocacy is a business. I'm having a difficult time getting my head around that. Right? It seems to be something paid for and included by the health system and/or the payer, um, which he is exactly right. Um, but we should not, uh, we shouldn't, we shouldn't ignore the fact that um, patient advocates in. In and around they're they're in and around us everywhere. I'm a patient advocate for my four children. I'm a patient. My wife's a patient Mm -hmm. advocate. Actually, let's be clear. My wife's a patient advocate for our four children, and I play some role in that. Um, But patient advocacy as a business is a a really interesting question. Certainly, in our pseudo capitalist economy of the United States of America, you know, someone has to pay for it, whether it's in you know time, uh, talent, or treasure and uh, i think you see patient advocacy across the board hospitals have patient advocates payers have uh, patient advocates and specifically in the Caris group right we are patient advocates paid for on behalf of some entity who's typically um, fiscally responsible for the patient I would even say my definition of
1: patient advocacy has changed in the last two and a half months since I joined the Kearis Group. So before, when I was W2O, I automatically thought of someone who was a, you know, had diabetes and was an advocate for that condition, and that was what patient advocacy was. And it's, I think that's changed, and I think that really what we're doing is we're kind of playing that role for the individual who is going through that situation. So that's where I almost think even the word patient advocacy is tricky because I don't know that it fully describes what we're actually providing, the services we're providing. And, and maybe it does go back to uh, who's paying for it. And, and that's why there's some skepticism there. So maybe that's even something we talk about is like who, who actually
0: does pay for patient advocacy? Right. Right. Someone has to. So Felicia, I'd be really interested in your, in your perspective. You've been here for, for a number of years and you focused on, number of aspects of advocacy. And now you lead the team that does patient advocacy, which we include as patient navigation, mm-hmm. which was mentioned in one of the definitions. Um, we certainly uh, use that term with regard to uh, bill pay negotiation or what would traditionally be called cost containment. Mm-hmm. But, you know, give give us a little flavor for kind of the stuff that you've seen. and And really let's Let's talk about the good things, right, about patient advocacy. There's probably some bad things too that we can talk about, but what are the what are the positives that you've seen in real world examples or real world life working with patients and being a patient advocate while you've been here?
2: Yeah, I believe that in patient advocacy, um, the person comes to us and they don't know really what they need, and I've been explaining to a couple of people. Um, onboarding them here the Karis group just letting them know that sometimes the member doesn't know exactly what they need and so we are their advocates to help fill in that gap so whether that is going to be finding a doctor or that is negotiating a medical bill um, sometimes people really just feel lost and so to me I feel like that the advocacy role is them being able to come to us and then we figure out what that need is and then filling that gap or that void of whether it was um, the end in-
0: yeah i'm not going to So that. yeah so so um, so take us through that patient uh, you know in, in our case invariably a patient calls in mm-hmm. you know what what are they looking for and how are we helping them
2: the patient calls in and they say they need a surgery and so then we kind of start triaging you know, what kind of surgery is it? Who has actually... Um, and, and
0: who said that they need a surgery? Is, is That's they, the they thing. Decide, that, have <laughs> they decided that they exactly, need a surgery? yeah. Right? They may
2: have just have like a foot and their cousin got a surgery or somebody in their family says, you need to do this. And they call maybe some their insurance or they call a number on the back of their car, they get to Keras and then we start asking those questions that maybe they haven't thought through. Who's prescribing this surgery? Do you have a surgeon? Do you have a physician? Where do they have permissions to do the surgery? What's this going to take? Do you have coverage? What is that coverage? And just kind of going through the questions and walking them through what that looks like for that medical incident. And so it could be a surgery or even just you know doctors or prescriptions. And so they'll call us saying they have a need or they'll call us with a question. And then we walk them through those questions they may not have answers to. And so trying to help them find those answers. So being a resource. And then, if it's something we can help with and take them through those next steps.
0: So, that's on the front side of care, right? Mm-hmm. So, right. someone comes in and they need something, and maybe they've been, maybe their doctor, their primary care doctor, said that they needed it, but maybe mm-hmm. their mother said that they needed it a tonsillectomy yeah, or something like that. That's one <laughs> side of the equation. Right. Um, what happens on the back side? They've, they've, they've been in and they've had a tonsillectomy. Mm-hmm. How, how are we advocates for them on the back side of care?
2: So once they've already rendered services, then they would come to us and they have this large outstanding balance. So if their insurance or um, their healthcare sharing um, is involved, then we would negotiate their bill. So they call us and say, I have a bill and it's this much money. And then we go forward, we get their release form and we move forward with explaining their situation to the provider saying, you know, what can we do for this individual person? Tell their story. if there is an, an income if there's you know household size what it looks like to be that person paying this bill there are catastrophic instances where a hospital may say we can't we will not let them apply for any kind of programs because they have insurance and then we say mm-hmm. that is these people are either retired or they're on a fixed income there's no way they're going to ever pay and you're going to put them on a payment plan for $30 a month for the rest of their life and it doesn't make any sense and you're almost in tears on the phone with the provider pleading with them until you get to someone that might say actually there is catastrophic financial assistance okay then let's go that route what does that look like and then helping the member go through that the documents that they might need and submitting that
0: so you truly are taking the um taking the persona of this person that you're working with and you're being their advocate, they don't know how to, they -hmm. don't know how the health, the U S healthcare system works. They don't Mm -hmm. know how to ask the right questions. Mm -hmm. All they know is they've got in your, in your example, they've got a $300,000 bill and there's no way for, for them to pay it. And, and you get to walk them, walk with them, I guess, almost be their counselor, um you know with with a hospital's billing officer or what have you and i guess you know that's that's a really good point um you know i've i've sat on phone calls and observed how the work is done here at the Caris group and um you typically end up at least your first call you typically end up with someone who really doesn't care Mm -hmm. and i shouldn't say I don't mean that they don't care because they don't care about people. They don't care about life, but their job is to answer the phone and collect bills. And so they're very abstract and objective Mm -hmm. of, okay, you have a $300, $300, $300,000 bill. Mm -hmm. How are you going to pay it? And I think what you're saying is you are, you and your team are helpers in bringing things down to life and saying, Mm -hmm. this Mm -hmm. is a real person. Mr. or Mrs. Smith is 70 years old and they just had a hip replacement Mm -hmm. and it would be for the, Best for the both of you mm-hmm. if you find a way to make this a reasonable cost, because A, you're not going to get all that money in the first place. Right. And and B, you're going to bankrupt somebody or put somebody in financial, you know, disparity over something that they couldn't control. Mm-hmm. And that's a that's a really sad case. But you have to drive through to the point mm-hmm. of is there financial assistance or just becoming real? And I think that's I think what you said is beautiful that patient advocates really do take on the persona of the person they're trying to help. Mm-hmm. Help, you know, you've got to understand it yourself, understand the situation that they're in and advocate on their behalf.
1: Yes. And I mean honestly, who hasn't been in that situation? Right? I mean all of us it's such a complicated well, in, one, some degree. in one way
0: it may not be a we pa- may not be patient. Your parent but, or your well, kid but, but, or your but I mean I think about I mean, we're, we've all been through the "I don't know what to do about something." It may yeah. not be a healthcare situation, mm-hmm. right? But your um, automobile, maybe your maybe automobile. What do I do Breaking. in this situation? It's five thousand dollars.
1: <laughs> so, but but I think you guys have done a good job of explaining what it is, and I think it, it. I hope it makes sense at least to those who are listening. That that you know, people get in these situations all the
0: time, and they need help to figure out what what they should do or shouldn't do. But this is the Health Fail podcast. So we are clearly failing. Maybe not as an organization here, but we are clearly failing Whoa. in the the world at large to understand patient advocacy and truly thinking through the needs of advocacy in the U.S. healthcare system. Well, I, I would actually go a step further and say that the the fact that
1: our organization exists is a result of the failure, failure in healthcare. Yeah, it's such a complicated system that. The three of us have worked in it for quite a while, and I, and I can't even navigate sometimes the situations that, that I find myself in. So, yeah, I think it's a it's a failure of the system that exists and how it's built and, and the incentives, as we were just talking about, that are behind it. So so I think that's why it's there. But I, I'd be curious to talk a little bit about the skepticism that exists. So if you, if you look at this Twitter conversation and, and why we got here, again, the, the, com- the comments that come up over and over are, well, this is just another fee. Like, we're just adding on another fee and another cost for what you guys are doing. So I don't know that we've really answered the question of who does pay for this. So maybe that's something we could even talk about. Like, why, how would someone have access to a patient advocate or our services? And not, so I should say, if you do some research, there are individual patient advocates out there who will help someone, but often it's, it's, you know, 200 bucks an hour or so. But how would, how would someone have access to our services? And then the second question is, who who's paying for those so that that patient has access?
0: Well, I think you just made a really, really important statement. Um, if someone can't afford the $300,000 bill or the $10,000 yeah. bill or the $500 bill, mm-hmm. they certainly can't afford a $200 caregiver patient advocate to advocate on your behalf. And so I think... $200 an hour. Yeah, yeah. yeah $200 yeah. an hour. And so I think the answer lies in, um, I mean, this is the answer to the entire health system. You can't get there on an economical, scalable basis without volume. And hence, you know, who, who has the volume? Who has the volume to pay for this, right? Um, you know, the CARES group charges or, you know, revenue model is typically based on a per employer per month or per member per month if we're dealing with a health plan. Okay. And it's, yeah, yeah. And, and sometimes we have had a history of, you know, sharing in the savings, which is often an interesting mm-hmm. model. But at the baseline, without volume, without thousands or tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of lives with a PEPM or a PMPM model, you can't do patient advocacy on the behalf of someone affordably uh, affordably, yeah. without yeah. it being two hundred dollars you know per hour. Uh, Felicia, I'd love to hear your thoughts on, you know, who should pay for patient advocacy. We know who pays for it in in our case, but who should be the responsible party?
2: I think that the hospitals and the um, the hospitals should be and the providers should want their patients to be educated. I think that would be a good symbiotic relationship between the provider and the patient. I um, know we have some providers that are willing to have like a subscriber model, where someone just subscribes to their their hospital or to their hospital or to their provider office, and they can come in as many times as they want. Like and, direct
1: primary care, yeah,
2: direct primary care. And I think that um, that could, if that was more global, and they would be more interested, almost like a an education, so yeah. almost be like a health educator.
0: So I agree with that, but but we also know that the providers and and the hospitals are just fighting to get paid by the insurance companies, right? Mm -hmm. And there is a a little bit of a perverse relationship when an insurance company uh, pays for patient advocacy. It's a little bit disingenuous. And you saw that in the conversation
1: Mm -hmm. online. And and I even feel that myself a little bit as to why. I think actually the uh, employer groups play a big role there, right? If if you're an employer group and you have 5,000 employees or whatever... Like that—that's—that's that's a group that should be offering some kind of patient advocacy services to their employers, and and it also and to their employees, and it also um, differentiates them when they're recruiting like new employees. Benefit.
2: Kind
0: of yes, and I think the line that we're drawing here is the person that pays for healthcare mm-hmm. should have included patient advocacy or some model thereof where i mean maybe we can cut the actual need for a patient advocacy right we cannibalize our own business that's how we innovate um but at the end of the day the patient is going to pay for their yeah uh, own health care and therefore just like i mean i think about it in um in, in the state of texas we have huge huge property taxes mm-hmm. right um, we don't have state income tax, which is a great blessing. But how that manifests itself out is if you pay for, if you buy a house in Texas, I think my property tax bill is going to be $9,000 for this year, right? So we're, we're, we're still getting hit. In the state of Texas, there are effectively property tax advocates that I can pay, True. you know, a couple of hundred dollars or a couple of thousand dollars. It's, they base it on savings that I can pay to go and advocate for me to lower my property tax. And that's what we're talking about here. But at the end of the day, I'm responsible for paying my property tax. So at the end of the day, I'm responsible for paying for an advocate to lower my property tax if I'm gonna do that. And I think our big issue here with who pays for it in the disingenuous, oh, I'm just gonna make up a new word, the disingenuousness, disingenuity, I can't say those words, is that we don't have a direct relationship typically with um with our healthcare provider right so um, uh, i'm sorry for the payment of healthcare. yeah we're, so it's, we're pretty far away from the actual cost we're we're pretty far right. if we're employed yeah our employer is at least paying for a portion of it so it's it's much lower and depending upon how large our employee group is yeah. um, we we are probably deferring the responsibility slash risk to a payer. And so by the payer paying for patient advocacy, we are effectively paying for it. We just don't understand that we're paying for it or understand even how to utilize it sometimes. And I think that's the the big challenge. So given the screwed up nature, the failed nature of our healthcare system, it seems to me, while I don't disagree with Felicia, I think that we lack incentives on the provider side. The provider wants to provide a service and get paid for it. And they shouldn't almost shouldn't have to pay for advocacy because they should be the advocates but they don't have time to be the advocates because they're just trying mm-hmm. to see the next patient or do the next surgery mm-hmm. and so we're left with the value chain of who pays for it being somewhere down the line of where the dollar is going certainly the healthcare, care um, the commercial payers health insurance companies self-insured have an incentive to keep their costs low, but they're also aside from the employee groups, the commercial plans are trying to make a profit. They've got their eighty-five-fifteen medical loss ratio; that they got to bump that up, and so they're just trying to save as much margin as they possibly can. Thoughts, Miss Felicia, as she takes a drink of water. Not drinking <laughs> Topo Chico today. We got to get you in the. This is official sponsor of, of Fountain Healthcare Podcast. Okay. Yeah. Um.
2: Yeah. the provider wouldn't cover the cost, I just. I, Back to him. Someone saying in that in the Twitter thread was that if someone can't afford to pay that, or maybe someone's not employed, or someone's going where? Where's like the Cobra for patient advocacy?
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, I think uh, you or it's know, all Cobra. N- no, I mean, I think. Listen, we we serve short term medical plans. We short we yeah. serve a lot a lot of different organizations, right? And it, it gets bundled in in a lot of those places. Medicare, Medicaid, I don't know what the status, I didn't look at the stats, If but I'm sure that Medicare Advantage plans probably bundle in uh, patient advocacy sometimes. I don't know what states are doing with Medicaid and Medicaid managed mm-hmm. care, but I'm betting just to reduce the overall cost to the state, to the taxpayer, that they're bundling in patient advocacy. I think where we see it the most though is is the large employer groups, and they're yeah. paying a ton of money for patient advocacy at that level because at the end of the day, it lowers their cost of spending. If you have someone who's advocating for you, it lowers the actual cost uh, of your care or can.
2: So, Stephen, are you saying to be part of like an EAP program, like an employer's assistance program?
1: Well, it might be an added-on uh, supplemental benefits.
0: So, okay. some, some patient advocacy programs look like EAP yeah. plans. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure.
1: I think it does come down to cost, though. I mean, I think it's who who, well, it comes down who to, would be it's, comes down it's to scale. I think scale. Well, what I was going to say is it's it's quality and cost, which which aren't often related in healthcare, unfortunately. You you'd think they were, but they aren't actually. So if if there's an employer group that can that can bring on a firm that can help them provide the same or better care to their employees. Um, and save costs, and, and actually make it easier for the patient to navigate the system. Mm-hmm. That's kind of a win-win-win, and I could see why they would be incentivized to add that on. Uh, so I think that's where the biggest biggest value add is for, for folks who, who need patient advocacy. I know also some of the larger insurance companies. Uh, you know, th- there's value for them in making the like the members' experience better. And we've talked about net promoter scores and things like that, but yes. there's also value there in, uh, in 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 really just giving it's such a it's such a uh, difficult situation when you have to call into a large insurance company as a member and navigate that system. Yes. So if they have a have a third party group that can provide that that service to them, and it's a bit more of a um, trusted group, I think that's also value, and that's you know I, I could see them adding that on as well. So. I, I could see it in a couple of different groups, is why they would want to why they would want to provide it. But honestly, I don't think there's any question that patients benefit from it, right? Like it, it, it's helpful. Right. It doesn't matter yes. who you are if I you're mean. in a situation in healthcare, having someone you can call and that can help you in the situation, mm-hmm. whether it's before, during, or after. I mean, that's that's pretty 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 awesome. So I think I think I would love to see it grow, uh, so that more individuals have access to it, and then I guess ultimately. Like you you said this earlier, ultimately, if we do a really good job, then there wouldn't be a need for patient advocacy, right? Like if the system got to a point where it was good enough, there wouldn't actually be a need for someone to step in and help someone navigate.
0: Uh, Agreed, but we're not moving. Let's just be clear. Healthcare is not moving into a place where there's not a need. And in fact, I think we're moving toward the place. I mean, healthcare advocacy has become the buzz, you know, more recently in the last... Five ten-ish years, which is kind of the exclamation mark on we're in big trouble in our healthcare system. If we're having to pay two hundred dollars an hour just to get somebody who can help navigate, it is so complex. Healthcare is so complex to navigate mm-hmm. that now, I mean, I I've been in healthcare for twenty years and I am a healthcare advocate for my family and I get stumped all the time. Fortunately, I have an incredible network. Of people who can give me data right I can call people you know that we've had on the podcast and say hey I need my grandmother who has been diagnosed with cancer in Little Rock Arkansas right real case about three years ago I I went through this and I said you know how do I find the best um, oncologist in Little Rock Arkansas so that I can direct her care I didn't I didn't have all the answers so 20 years in healthcare and i mean there's people hopefully that are joining our podcast that have had 30 or 40 years in healthcare as as frustrated as as i was trying to find the best oncologist in little rock arkansas and you know you know that um you know that it's maybe not the obvious organizations right the ones that advertise uh, on billboards um because once you follow the dollars how much money are they spending on advertising to get you into their oncology group so i think that's the that's the bigger Uh, issue and concern. You know, one of the things that Felicia mentioned, and I think it's worth calling out here, um, is is you mentioned healthcare sharing organizations. And I don't think that people at large in our audience pool maybe even understand what healthcare sharing is. Mm -hmm. You're a member of a healthcare sharing organization. Yes. um, And I think it's an area that's unique when it comes to the need for patient advocacy. Would you feel comfortable describing, maybe not the specific entity, but describing healthcare sharing and how it works in the community and why health uh, patient advocacy is important there?
2: Sure, so healthcare sharing is where there's a community of individuals. They're part of an organization and they will actually share their bills amongst amongst one another. So if someone has a bill for $10,000, they're still paying their what one might call a premium for their insurance or in the healthcare sharing world, we call it a share. And so their share typically stays the same as long as the costs can remain contained. So if I'm paying $150 for an individual uh, share for that month, then the community tells me, someone who's facilitating the community, they tell me uh you pay that 150 to an individual who has a bill and your one fifty plus however many more individuals paying their premium or their share to that individual, help them pay their ten thousand dollar bill. So that's one so you're end up you're helping that individual um personally so you can write them encouraging notes you can send that money you know it's going to that person rather than it going to administrative costs or rather than it going to marketing as was previously mentioned and so you know that your premium or your share is going toward that so for patient advocacy you're really wanting to make sure that your ten thousand dollar bill if you can negotiate that or if i can negotiate that up front instead of it being ten thousand and having people um, depending on people to send me ten thousand dollars to pay my ten thousand dollar bill if i can get that negotiated down to two thousand dollars then the entire organization or that organ that community can spend the other eight thousand helping someone else who may not be able to negotiate so they're you know of course within the community you can have bone marrow transplants and so that may not be able to be negotiated especially if there's a large upfront cost so i'd rather that eight thousand dollars Um, that I can pre-negotiate to then be used for maybe some NICU patients or cancer patients. Um, So that's how the community comes together, and that's what I would entail is healthcare sharing.
0: Yeah, it's really a a beautiful model. Um, In terms of the incentives being aligned, uh, especially for patient advocacy, um, healthcare sharing is not a new concept. It's been around for thirty or forty years, maybe, um, mostly in the the Christian ministry scene or churches who have shared uh, a cost. But we're starting to see new models evolve, uh, where it looks more like um, I, I I tend to use the terms um, the GoFundMe mm, of right. of healthcare. But it's where you know these entities mm-hmm. they they do make money because they have an administrative cost but it's it's almost more like a a tpa for for groups in common who have decided to to share costs and i think Mm -hmm. it really becomes apparent when you are not flooding you know cash into a risk pool that has all sorts of weird parameters and, you know, classified as insurance because healthcare sharing is not classified Mm -hmm. as insurance. But when you're pooling money amongst a a group of friends, it's really like, you know, going and checking with all of your neighbors and saying, Hey, my son was just diagnosed with cancer and it's going to cost us $20,000. Would each of you put in the pool this month so that we can help pay for his bills. And that's where, You want to have someone in the group, right, to be an advocate. Wait a minute, where is he going? MD Anderson. Okay, well, I know a surgeon over there. I know this or that, and that's how this organically happens. Then you bring it down to kind of mass and scale and think about how would we do that over thousands or hundreds of thousands or millions of people.
1: Yeah, and I think actually health sharing is probably a topic we should discuss in a future episode. We, uh, You know, giving it five minutes is probably not enough time. I know we're, we're hitting the end of the hour here, but uh, yeah. I do think that's a topic that we should go a lot deeper into. Because um, as a as a new member of a health share who is learning a lot, and, and my wife is learning a lot as we navigate some of the situations we're in, uh, definitely something that we should discuss further. So um, I think we covered it pretty well, patient advocacy. Hopefully people who listened uh, know more about it than they did before. Uh, thanks, Felicia, for joining yeah, us. You. Really appreciate thank you. you. Thank you, uh, Anything
0: else you'd add? No, um, yes. The one question that we ask at the end of every podcast is what book or maybe podcast is top on your list? What are you reading right now, Felicia?
2: I'm reading Excellence Wins.
0: Excellence Wins, you remember the author?
2: Horace Schultz.
0: Oh, yes. I think I told you you should read that book. I said as fast as possible. Horace Schultz. That's yes. Are you right. sucking up to Zach by
1: saying that you're <laughs> reading his book? Mm, no. no, I just finished <laughs> just it, kidding. but I'm also wearing, I'm uh,
2: reading uh, Dare to Lead by Brene Brown. Oh,
0: that's fantastic. We
1: talk about Brene Brown a lot on the podcast.
2: Thank
0: you for joining us today, Felicia. Absolutely. Thanks everyone for joining this edition of the Health Fail Podcast. We hope that you will go online, tweet us, LinkedIn us, Facebook us, share it with your friends and join us for the next episode in two weeks. You'll have a great day.